My guest today is very unique. Eric Stillman is the CEO and founder of Rapid, a fintech as a service or financial infrastructure company that is valued at $2.5 billion. And in today's episode, Eric talks about how his role as the CEO has changed as his company has grown, how the payments and fintech landscape has changed since he first entered, and where he sees fintech, whether there'll be a cashless economy and other things. Hi Eric, thank you for doing this with me. Hey, no problem, happy to be on. The first thing I wanted to ask about is, uh, well, what is Rapid? So Rapid is a fintech company that basically uh, built a financial infrastructure that is API'd, that allows other companies to build on top of us financial services for their own consumers. So you can think about it like a type of an Amazon AWS for the fintech space. It's basically a lot of different APIs that, that connect other companies to financial uh, infrastructure to do things like bank transfers, exchanging uh, currency, collecting money, doing payouts, uh, issue virtual cards, and everything that is related to it. How did you first come up with the idea? So actually the idea was supposed to be something else. So when, when we started this company, this company was supposed to be facing a digital wallet, a type of a PayPal competitor. Uh, and when we started to build this idea of, of a company called CashDash, we basically stumbled into every single problem that exists when you're trying to build a financial service for consumers. From the fact that you need to get regulated to the fact that you need to connect a lot of different technological components to your solution in order to create really a digital wallet like PayPal. And basically midway into the idea, we understood that we should pivot the company and change it to a different idea, which is what Rapid is today, which is a type of an infrastructure that allows other companies to build on top of us uh, the same solution in a much faster way. So when we wanted to create CashDash, it took us a year and a half to create it only in the UK. And the reality is that in today's world with Rapid, another company that would like to create something like CashDash, like a consumer-facing wallet, can build it on top of Rapid in two weeks. And that, that was the main idea behind the, this pivot that we did with the company. So you've decided to take a pivot. You've spotted a gap in the market. How then did you capitalize on that idea? So, you know, we, we thought that uh, spending our time in building uh, infrastructure that will only be used by us uh, will be a waste of time. And on the other hand, by just exposing this infrastructure for other companies can become a much bigger business. So we basically took all the technology that we've built up until that stage and, uh, and changed the direction of this technology to basically be exposed to other companies. Uh, and, you know, we opened it up at the beginning for uh, small startups and later on for larger companies. And today Rapid is a completely global business that serves, uh, you know, thousands of clients across more than 100 countries across the globe. And, you know, from the biggest brand names up until a small mom and pop shop, a lot of companies are using our technology. What then were the main obstacles you faced? 
Well, uh, so there were quite a lot of obstacles, you know, from, you know, fundraising for a company and actually convincing investors to invest in your idea to getting regulated and dealing with, you know, financial institutions globally, uh, you know, building a financial technology company is completely different than building other type of technology companies because the regulatory elements uh, are, are very big in this business. So, you know, understanding how to speak with regulators, how to get the required licensing in order to operate in different jurisdictions. It also was, you know, one of the biggest hurdles that we stumbled into. So say with the problem of fundraising, how then did you overcome that obstacle and hurdle? So at the beginning, we, we invested our own personal money into the business. And then it took us another year to convince, you know, investors to to believe in the idea, but at the end of the day, I think it took us uh, approximately two years to sharpen our elevator pitch uh, because in the beginning, everybody were asking us, what exactly do you do? And it was a very complicated answer. Oh, we provide financial infrastructure for other companies to build on top of us and blah, blah, blah. And this, this is like too long for an elevator pitch. And a lot of times when you raise money, you need to find that secret sentence, the elevator pitch that will open up the eyes of the investors and they will believe in the vision. And it took us two years to understand that the pitch is basically telling to somebody, we are like Amazon AWS, but for the fintech space. And that simple sentence changed completely the perception of investors of the company. And and as simple as it sounds, it took two years to get to this pitch and it resolved a lot of our challenges in fundraising. Except of the fact that actually the business also was growing and etc. But I think the big thing was this elevator pitch of sharpening the answer of what exactly do you do. So after you got that initial seed money, what was your next step? So the next step was actually building uh, building a business, right? Uh, so, you know, building technology, building product, uh, actually uh, selling this product to other companies, uh, scaling the business globally. We started originally in the UK uh, and then we expanded to other territories in Latin America and Asia Pacific. Uh, and over a course of a year and a half, uh, we basically proved to our seed investors and to ourselves that the idea that we had actually is a real business and companies are willing to pay for it. Uh, we generated revenue, we generated payment processing volume, which is basically the funds that move through our platform. And you know, after we proved to the investors that this idea is actually a scalable idea and there is a real market need, we could have moved to the next fundraising step that really you know, allowed us to raise enough money you know, to build a, a much more global and sustainable business. So with scaling, with there being so many regulators from the FCA to the SEC in America, how do you remain compliant amongst all of them when you're trying to globalize? So first of all, we have a global compliance team, right? We have uh, three chief compliance officers, one in each region, uh, one in the US, uh, one uh, in Europe and one in Asia Pacific. Uh, the three of them basically have their own regional compliance teams. Every single one of the compliance teams is responsible for managing the relationships with the local regulators in every country that we operate in. And they basically, you know, they are our connection to the regulators and they make sure that every single thing that we do from a product perspective and also from a money movement perspective is compliant with the regulation in the country that we work in. So at the end of the day, 
they are the gatekeepers that uh, that make sure that everything that we do is compliant. Yeah, that's similar to the last guest I had on, like a divide and conquer strategy. Who then are your target segments for Rapid? Uh, so, you know, we sell to a lot of different industries, but at the end of the day, the two fastest growing industries that we sell to are marketplaces uh, and e-commerce uh, companies. I think that marketplaces are probably the biggest one. Uh, and, you know, any almost any business today is a type of a marketplace, which means he has sellers and buyers. Even Amazon, by the way, is a marketplace because a lot of times there are other people that sell on Amazon. Uh, so this type of structures became very popular over the last five years. Uh, and the thing that people don't understand about the complexity of a marketplace is that the marketplace is typically a, a solution that needs a lot of services, more than just collecting a payment from a consumer debit or a credit card. You know, marketplaces need to store funds on behalf of marketplace sellers. They need to disburse funds to marketplace-based sellers. So marketplaces are actually the best type of companies that uh, uses rapid capabilities today. So you briefly mentioned uh, e-commerce there, and then in the scape of the pandemic, loads of people turned to like Shopify to set up their own e-commerce stores. So how did the pandemic affect Rapid? Uh, well, it of course did very well for our business. Uh, from the beginning of the pandemic and up until now, our business grew in more than 500%. Uh, so the fact that a lot of businesses moved to online payments and almost every single mom and pop shop on planet Earth suddenly needed an online presence. Uh, they went to platforms like Wix, Shopify, WooCommerce, Magento and others. Uh, and all of them needed, of course, to collect payments online and that boosted our business significantly. So then again, with rapid scaling and globalizing, how then do you deal with like Forex, cross-border payments, when trying to scale and grow and become this global company that Rapid is? So our, our entire platform uh, operates in more than 105 countries and we have the ability to store funds in 55 different currencies. We have our own uh, financial infrastructure, we have our own bank accounts and of course we have our own FX uh, engine. Uh, that uh, is basically built on top of several banks and allows us to trade between multiple currency pairs. Uh, and we basically operate like, like a big bank. We have the ability to convert currencies and we have the ability to store them. Uh, and basically we manage our own treasury and effects through the platform. So with scaling being one of your previous uh, challenges, what are the future challenges and obstacles for Rapid? Well, the, one of the biggest challenges of Rapid at the end of the day is the fact that the business is growing much faster than the recruitment of new employees. The, the biggest obstacle, uh, I think, in a fast-growing tech company in today's world is basically growing the number of employees that you have, especially on the engineering side, you know, to be able to support the growth of the business. Uh, and, and basically, you can look at it like a ship that uh, is not balanced. On one side, you have all the clients. On the other side, you need to have enough engineering firepower to build a lot of capabilities uh, and I think that the fast recruitment pace is a critical element and probably the biggest challenge uh, in our growth. So you've just raised in your Series D funding 300 million. I mean, congratulations, by the way. It's a hefty valuation. What do you do with this money and like, what are the next steps for Rapid after you've raised such a large sum in your f funding? So the main logic behind uh, raising this amount of money is some of the M&A initiatives that we have. So we plan to acquire several companies in the space 
uh, in territories in Asia Pacific and Latin America. Uh, we needed a war chest of enough money to basically do these acquisitions. We acquired a company in Europe, uh, in Iceland in March uh, 2020. And basically we understood that uh, in order to continue the fast pace of our growth, we need to do a combination between organic growth and uh, the growth of uh, through M&A. And it's mainly for the acquisition. Again, relating back to this Series D funding, how has your role as the CEO changed from when it was that initial startup, you've pivoted from Cashdash, into what it is now with a $2.5 billion valuation? Wow, uh, that changed dramatically, right? When you're managing and you're CEO of a small company of 10, 15 people, you basically do everything from product to engineering to even cleaning the office. Uh, it's a small company, right? You do everything that is needed in order to the company to survive. When a company grows and becomes a, you know, a company with several hundreds of million dollars in the bank account, you need to basically manage the big picture. You need to steer the direction, the direction of the company, mainly make sure that you recruit the right management team that is working with you, uh, and, and mainly make sure that the vision of the company is actually being implemented and executed based on what you want. It's a completely different type of a role than you know, from a small company. And it is something that you also need to get used to because in a small company, you get involved in every single decision and you know every single line of code that was written. And when the company grows, uh, you don't even know 70% uh, of the employees by name, right? It's just too big. Uh, and that becomes a different uh, type of a situation. And that, that was the, really the biggest change. So what's the big picture looking like for Rapid right now then? The big picture looks, you know, the fact that we, we have two big things that we're trying to achieve. First of all, we have what we call the self-service onboarding business uh, of Rapid, which is basically serving small clients that are coming into our platform and creating a Rapid account and starting to collect payments or disburse payments without actually talking to a human being. So it's a fully automated solution that allows anybody to open a Rapid account and start basically processing payments uh, and that's basically uh, something that we're, we're fully invested in. It's one of the biggest growth engines of our platform. And on the other hand, there is the merger and acquisition strategy, the M&A strategy that we're uh, running, that basically uh, includes uh, acquiring several companies uh, across the globe. And, you know, that's, that's mainly what I'm trying to, to manage these days. Do you mind just describing the M&A process for us? Yeah, sure. So, uh, you know, we have a team that is called the corporate development team that their their job is to look around the globe and find companies that can actually take Rapid to the next stage if we acquire them. Uh, in every region, you know, there are different types of companies uh, and, you know, different types of requirements that we have for these type of companies. Uh, and, and the team is analyzing them. They're, uh, you know, trying to understand how do they work, what is the financial structure of these companies, and what will happen to these companies if Rapid will acquire them? Because sometimes, you know, one plus one uh, might not equal two. It might be equal three or it might be equal zero uh, because of a failure in the strategy. And, you know, we're, we're doing our own analysis and, you know, we're making sure that a company that we would like to acquire is a company that actually, uh, when we do the one plus one with Rapid, it will be worth at least three, if not five. Uh, and it's, it's an analysis of the technology that we, they have, of the fit from a cultural perspective that they have to Rapid, 
Uh, and that that's basically you know the main thing that we're doing so when you're looking at a business which you want to acquire are you looking more then at the culture side rather than the quantitative fundamentals and the numbers behind the business it's more the characteristics uh, it's more about the people that exist in the business the cultural fit into rapid and their technological fit into rapid that's the main thing that we're looking at some very interesting insights there but another tangent i'd like to go on in this podcast is more about yourself so what do you think made you the entrepreneur you are today uh, well, I'm a very competitive person, first of all. You know, I played uh, basketball when I was a kid and I always liked to win. Uh, and I also had a lot of uh, influence, technological influence at home. Uh, I had a computer from the age of four when basically a computer was just a black screen uh, with no user interface way before the Microsoft Windows days. Uh, and I used the internet in 1991 when most people on planet Earth didn't even know what is internet. So basically, the combination between very early access to computers and a very big strive to succeed and win uh, led me to become an entrepreneur. And you know, I wanted to, to first of all do new and innovative things, and uh, always I want to be the best in what I do, and I'm not afraid of competing with very large companies. And that's basically what leads me in becoming an entrepreneur. What did you wish you first knew when you first entered finance in the fintech space that you didn't have access to knowing before? Uh, I think that uh, I wish I knew better compliance. Uh, you know, in the beginning when I started the business, I didn't understand the compliance aspects of uh, financial services. and. Uh, the people that basically helped me uh, and taught me what compliance is, uh, they did it in their own pace and it took me quite a while to understand what type of questions do I need to ask as a CEO in order to get the right answers from a compliance perspective. And I wish that from day one that I started the company, I understood compliance in the same way that I understand today, because today I understand that basically on the compliance aspects of the business, there are a lot of different ways to achieve a compliance status uh, and you just need to understand what do you want to do and how, how to do it. And, and this combination of things is super critical for, for a financial technology company. You just mentioned there wanting to know what you want to do and how to do it. So how then do you devise strategies in order to execute what you want to do? How do you decide how you actually want to do things? Well, well, it depends, right? Uh, at the end of the day, when you look at the financial technology business, there are different types of strategies that you need to look at. There is the, the technological strategy, which might be completely different from the compliance strategy, right? Uh, on the technological strategy, a lot of times what you're trying to achieve is basically the most scalable platform uh, that can serve the most amount of clients uh, in the best way possible without basically becoming a bottleneck uh, for processing uh, payments and money. And one of the biggest challenges of companies in payments is that when you get to a very large scale, your technological stack is basically not able to support your requirements. And that, that is a one story on the technological side, but it's a completely different story on the compliance side where a lot of times a combination of the right regulatory licenses and the right structure of your contracts from a legal perspective will lead you to be able to do business. Yeah, very interesting insights. Um, one of the other things I'd like to know from you, 
because of your expertise in fintech is how has fintech changed since you first entered like the industry well it changed completely i think that in 2016 when we got into fintech nobody talked about fintech infrastructure everybody talked about fintech like neobanks were fintech lending companies were fintechs and everybody thought that fintechs are going to compete with banks that was the definition of fintech but the reality is that in today's world people understand that banks and fintechs do not compete they cooperate and there is a need basically for fintech infrastructure that actually runs on top of banks and the perception of competition between fintechs and banks and how they work together that's the biggest change i've seen since i got into this space well what do you think is next then for fintech and the industry as a whole i think that the biggest thing for fintechs is basically the understanding that on in today's world almost every single big brand that has a lot of consumers wants to become a payments company right you look at apple pay google pay samsung pay amazon pay everybody wants to create a, a payment or a fintech solution because people understand that the way to monetize uh, on clients is related to financial services and i think that the biggest thing is that we will see that that uh, visa and mastercard and american express are becoming less relevant and payments and everything that is related to financial con- consumer financial services is moving to the control of the big brands yeah i mean apple i think they partnered with like goldman sachs and and released their own cards but do you think given these large big corporations power over payments will have a net positive or net negative oh, effect oh. no I, I think it will have a positive effect because of a very simple thing i think that the service that they can give and the, the experience they can give is dramatically better than any bank or any lending company or you know anybody because they know how to sell consumers this is what they do best i think that the regulators in today's world are very sophisticated and they basically have the ability to uh, better control uh, what these companies are doing and i don't think it's going to cause any privacy issues or any problems uh, in the space i do i do think it's only a change for the best so with this huge like digitization of the economy as a whole do you think this will all eventually lead to like a cashless economy at the end of the day yes you know it, it will take by the way a very long time people think that cash is going away like tomorrow but i think the reality is that it will take a very long time uh, that the cash will go away uh, just because it is a very heavily used payment instrument across the globe and a lot of people in the world are dependent on it because uh, they get their salary in cash because they don't believe in banks and there are a lot of other elements uh, but at the end of the day yes the society will be cashless and payments will be mobile payments you will not have a wallet everything will be on your phone it's already clear that it is going there uh, but it will take a long time it is seriously it's not something that is going to happen uh, in the next five years for sure i think it's more a 20 year period how do you think a cashless economy will affect like crime say like money laundering or things like that no there is not going to be a big effect i think from crime and money laundering because i think that at the end of the day uh, the the crooks of the world are super sophisticated 
and they have a zillion ways to go around and you see the usage in cryptocurrency and how people lose their money through cryptocurrency. Uh, there is always enough room for the crooks to find the way to, to do bad things. I do think though that from a tax perspective, the ability to hide your income and not pay taxes, this is the piece that will go away. So you just mentioned cryptocurrencies then. Now, how will they affect the payments landscapes and payments as a service industry? Uh, so even though in to, today when we were talking, uh, there was just an announcement by Tesla that they bought $1.5 billion of crypto and they're going to accept payments for cars in crypto. I personally do not see cryptocurrency as a payment method. I think that Bitcoin and other type of cryptocurrencies in today's world are more uh, a type of a commodity, let's say the new gold, something that people can invest in. Uh, and I don't see them as becoming payment methods. I do see though regulators in big countries, including the US and the European Union, uh, issuing a digital dollar or a digital euro, which is going to be basically a crypto version of the official currency. But up until that will happen, I don't see these currencies as something that will uh, actually become a payment method that is fully accepted by everybody. Yeah, that's very interesting insight. Um, now, another thing I'd like to touch on is, I mean, do you think there's a, like a tech bubble as it stands within like technological innovation? Uh, there is no tech bubble, but there is a price bubble, right? I think that the tech companies in today's world are real companies, not like in the 2001 bubble. But I do think there is a price bubble that a billion dollars in today's world are probably worth from a valuation perspective what a uh, hundred million dollars were worth five, six years ago, right? There, this is the bubble that exists. It's just the valuation bubble. But the tech itself is real and the companies are real and their way and their ability to change the world is real. But maybe the valuation is not real. That's a different story. Yeah, I mean, with the case of Moonpig, they recently just had their IPO and it was a monster IPO. They were up 17%. And one of the things contributing to that was that they recently like rebranded themselves as a tech company rather than just a simple car-giving company. Yeah. So people people get confused uh, a lot of times, uh, you know, by a variety of companies that do it. By the way, WeWork try to do the same, right? WeWork is a real estate company they try to brand themselves as a, as a tech company and they're actually able to get valuations uh, of a tech company up until, somebody, up until somebody woke up and saw that they're actually not a tech company, right? Uh, so, yes, uh, it, it is doable and it is possible. But at the end of the day, I think that the markets are smart enough in order to make a differentiation between real tech and fake tech. Uh, but still, there is too much money in the public market just because money is available in today's world because there are no other investment vehicles. The interest rate is zero or negative. So the amount of money that is being poured into the stock market is so big that, yes, the valuations are a little bit higher than what they should be. But, you know, that's the reality. And maybe it will stay this way forever, right? As long as the interest rates are negative and zero, people don't have any other place to put their money yeah, that's interesting with like the excess liquidity leading to these overvalued valuations. Now, do you think that the government's control over the money supply 
is like one of the reasons behind this. And do you think like some the government shouldn't have such control they do over the money supply and the dollar? I think that you know the governments have to control the money uh, because this is the way to make sure that the, the country actually uh, doesn't fall apart, right? Uh, and uh, you know the movement between one currency to another is more a political thing than, a, than actually an economical thing. Uh, and there is, for the last several years, a war between countries, the currency war between China and the US, between the European Union and the US because of export and import uh, uh, requirements. Uh, and it's more a type of, of a game, like between hedge funds, but between countries, which is a little bit bigger. But that's the main reason why things move. That's, that's at least my opinion on things. Yeah, that's an interesting idea with like it being a game. Now, one of the other things that gained popularity over the pandemic, along with e-commerce, were these buy now, pay later schemes like Klarna. What is your assessment of them? I think it's a it's a big part of the future. So, just to let you know, in Israel, the country where I'm originally from, buy now, pay later always existed, uh, and no interest rate. Basically, you can pay with installments. From you know, for the last 30, 40 years, I'm familiar with this. It is something that came, you know, to the world as buy now, pay later over the last several years. But I do think it is truly the uh, legit way to pay that is going to grow over time. It's going to continue and grow because these tech companies like Klarna have an ability to basically offer more competitive rates for buy now, pay later than the banks, and they have more data and more underwriting capabilities and more sophistication in their tech than uh, the existing banks. You mentioned about your Israeli her- heritage. So coming from Israel to the UK, was there a culture shock to uh, you? No, it's not a culture shock. I think that uh, the, the main difference between Europe in general and a country like Israel is the fact that uh, people are maybe a little bit more polite uh, and don't are they're not so much in your face like in the Middle East and you know they are not saying everything that they think immediately it takes them time to peel to peel the onion and to actually explain what they want but overall it wasn't a big culture shock at all so do you think then coming from Israel and being more transparent and open has helped you in your businesses and your ventures oh yeah definitely uh, it's much more it's much easier to to come from Israel and to do business globally than to come for example from the US to Europe or from the Europe to the US or from the US to Asia Pacific I think that when you come from a small company from a small country you understand that basically the world operates in variety of ways and every country is different but when you come from a big country you always think that your country is the way that the world works uh, and that, that is one advantage of coming from a small country like Israel or from another small country is the understanding and the acceptance that the world is different than your country. So that adaptability and malleability is a very interesting like concept. How has that come to fruition within RAPID? I think mainly the, the ability to be flexible and operate differently in every market that we're in. And the way that the tech stack is, is created, uh, that is a very flexible stack and it's not very American based or very European based. It's very flexible and adoptive to the local countries that we're operating. This is where you see most of the impact.
So then dealing with markets from across the globe and the four corners of the earth, how then are like, do they differ, say like between Europe or like Asia Pacific? How are the markets different to each other? Oh, so Europe is a very card heavy market. People are used to paying with cards and they like the card experience of payments of 16 digit expiration and etc. In Asia Pacific, people are very addicted uh, to two different payment methods. One is called online bank transfers, where they actually transfer money in real time from the bank account into the bank account of the merchant and the uh, local wallets. There are a lot of local digital wallets in Asia Pacific, like the Chinese wallets, Alipay and WeChat, and several other wallets that exist in, in Asia, like GrabPay, Gojek, uh, and others. And people are just used to a different checkout experience when they pay on an e-commerce website. And as a European, if you look at the way that they pay, you would say, oh, it's awful. How can people pay this way? But this is actually what they prefer. Uh, so that's a completely different uh, way of, of paying. So with the all these different options of paying and all these different like demands from consumers, how does Rapid deal with this variety of payments? And well, demands? first of all, this is our business. Uh, we have a team in each region that is dedicated to scoping the new ways to pay in every single country. We are trying to adopt uh, our payment experience and the checkout experience that we provide to every single market uh, that we're operating. And at the end of the day, I think that we have around 60, 70 people in the company. And this is the only thing they do every day that they come to the office. And this is the way to, to basically do it in the best way possible. Yeah, that's just like a basic economic concept, I guess, like specialization and division of labor. So with this huge digitization of finance and other parts of the economy, how do you think this will affect like equality? Do you reckon it will lead to more equality, less equality? Will the economy be more equitable? What are your opinions? Uh, more quality. At the end of the day, I think that uh, diversification and options leads to better quality. Um, so an interesting thing is that only 57% of the population have access to the internet. So what will happen? Will the internet become more accessible as there's more innovation around digitization? Yeah, I think internet becomes more accessible and digital payments and mobile phones turn it into more accessible. I think that the pandemic also forced a lot of people to use the internet more, especially elderly people, and generally the internet will, will grow. What do you think the biggest lessons you've learned from like founding and being the CEO of Rapid have been? I think that the, the biggest lessons I learned is, first of all, uh, understanding regulation is a critical element uh, in the success of fintech, like I said, uh, and uh, scaling up R&D teams, uh, you know, in, in a very fast paced growing tech company is uh, a very challenging thing. That's, uh, that's my two biggest you know, things that I learned at the end of the day. So dealing with regulators, what have been the most difficult regulators you've dealt with? Uh, wow, I, I don't want to name names because they, they might be listening to a podcast at the end of the day, but I <laughs> think that the harder, the, the European Union regulators overall, they're very sophisticated and they know what they're looking for. And, and there is a lot of respect, you know, from tech companies because when you talk to these European Union regulators, 
it actually makes uh, quite a lot of sense uh, the requirements uh, I think that the Asians want are more complicated to deal with so I was watching this thing the other day and it was about fint the how fintechs got started and it talked about how the FCA introduced the, like a competition mandate how much of an effect do these like policies from regulators have you know what I don't think it changed it yet I, I think that there is still a uh, uh, an aftershock that will come at the current stage. I really didn't see a big change in, you know, in the fintechs. Uh, the, the reality is that this type of decisions by the regulator, it takes several years until you actually feel the, the change, right? A lot of people think that when a regulator decides something, immediately you should see something as a result. But the reality is that no, it takes time. Uh, and I don't think that we've seen it at the time. So I just mentioned it then, but like, what do you think created this huge fintech revolution uh, i think mainly the lack of technological capabilities and the openness of the banks and other financial institutions you know banks insurance companies and other financial institutions were very closed systems they never thought they need to work with other companies they never thought about exposing technology to other companies and basically the demand from consumers for a lot of different services started to go very fast and you know these uh, organizations are like dinosaurs they move very slow uh, and i think that that was the main thing that uh, that drove fintech so i was watching like you speak at uh, a conference it may have been like money 2020 something like that and you said you learned a lot from your consumers and merchants so what have you actually learned from your consumers well, first of all, I learned from consumers uh, that they have their own preferred way to pay or get paid, which is not actually the preferred way to pay or get paid that I have, right? And, and being able to be flexible to understand other people's experiences and what they prefer is, is very you know, uh, important. For example, if you look at the Asian way to pay, they like you know, a lot of different things. Uh, that, that typically, you know, people in uh, in markets like Europe and the US don't like. Uh, they like different colors. They like more pages, and and basically understanding that you don't need to educate consumers. They will actually educate you. I think it's the number one thing I learned. So as fintechs have uh, revolutionized, it's changed from like B to C with consumers to more. B2B payments. So how does Rapid stay on top of this changing industry and how is it like dealt with this rise in B2B? Uh, well, it's, it's basically a combination between still being hungry to learn more, right? Uh, a lot of times you think that you know everything uh, and then, you know, suddenly somebody else comes in and, and basically does things better than you and I think that... Uh, uh, being hungry to learn and being willing to be taught uh, and understanding the different ways that businesses have a need to pay and get paid and how to transact globally is a very important thing and this will what allow us to to stay you know uh, ahead of things so you mentioned the idea of staying hungry so after getting that large sum from your series d funding how do you fight complacency and remain hungry uh, I think it's mainly related to our uh, to our culture of the company. I don't think that uh, anything else. So if you were to describe 
Rapids culture in one word, what would you describe it as? Very not official, no bullshit, uh, no hierarchy, and especially not thinking that we know everything in the world better than others. That's, I think, the most important thing. So as you've scaled and you've got less reach as a CEO, how do you make sure you maintain that culture within Rapid? That's the number one challenge of our recruitment process. At the end of the day, when I interview people to join the company, one of the main things I'm looking at these people is if they will be able to recruit in the future employees in the same way that I will recruit them, like keeping the culture of the company, making sure that you know people have this uh, uh, no bullshit uh, attitude. You know, you need to make sure that you hire people that have the same attitude that you have. And, you know, that's that's a complicated thing, right? It's not easy to do. So what characteristics make up a desirable employee, someone that you want to work for you? Uh, willing to learn, uh, willing to do whatever it takes in order to, to complete the, the task, right? At the end of the day, a lot of people... They think that they were hired for to do something, and then if you ask them suddenly to do for a week or two something else, they might get offended, and these type of people don't fit into the rapid culture because we prefer all-around players. Uh, so I think that these two things are critical at the end of the day for us. Yeah, amazing insights there. One last thing I'd like to ask you is, what piece of advice would you give to people my age? who want to become entrepreneurs, who want to get involved in fintech, what would you advise? I think that at the end of the day, the most important thing that, that I can say is that uh, people at your age need to understand that working in tech is not only the glamour of uh, the big offices, the the high salary, the everything that is related to, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, technological advantages and etc. I think that the hard work element uh, and the demand that sometimes working in tech has is something that a lot of times people that are young do not understand. They think there is only the glamour and the fun and the parties and the beer keg and whatever it is. And you need to understand that in order to have great companies that are successful, people need to work very hard to make them successful. And these people are not only the founders of the managers of the company, but it's actually every single person that works in the company needs to give everything he has. So the company would be successful, exactly like in a sports team. And that's what I always tell people that tech is like football. It's not like tennis. It's not a one-on-one -on -one game like tennis. It's, a it's like football, it's a team game. And if somebody in the team and it doesn't matter, by the way, if it is the cleaning person or the developer or the secretary or the CFO. If they don't give everything they have, the team will lose. Yeah, well, that that is great insights into fintech and business as a whole, really. So thank you, Eric, for coming on, giving us your insights about the payments landscape, founding a company, scaling I really appreciate it and so are my listeners. Thank you very much for having me and thank you for your time. If you'd like to see more of Eric, I've linked down his uh, LinkedIn profile down below and a link to the Rapid website where there's a lot of information about what they do and how you can get involved. Thank you for listening. See you next time.